We have all faced this dilemma at the end of a long day. Make a healthy homemade dinner or take the quick and easy route of ordering in. I am embarrassed by how often my husband and I at least suggest ordering in. But that isn't the thing we do when we have a gobble meal in the fridge. Gobble takes less than 15 minutes to put together. It is faster than delivery. We live down the street from a brick oven pizza place. If you ran from the brick oven pizza place from our front door to their front door and back, it would take longer than 15 minutes. And that's not even cooking the pizza. The great thing about Gobble, what makes it different from other services, is that they have an army of sous chefs that do all the time-consuming work for you. They don't just pick out the highest quality ingredients. They do the peeling and the chopping and the marinating. It is very much the Lego meal, but it is a beautiful Lego meal. You pick out the meals every week. There are family favorites, gluten-free options, dairy-free options, and vegetarian options. And don't think that the meal is plain just because it's been put together for you. The Japanese steak bento bowl, like that's like, you know, that's not just one plus two equals three. That's like a, uh, like doing long division. It's complicated, but delicious, much like long division. So basically gobble makes it too easy to order out. You will have a home-cooked meal ready in just 15 minutes. Most meals are only just one pan, so cleanup is easy. Usually with my husband, it's like somebody cooks, somebody cleans. Gobble, I can pretend to be really magnanimous and do the cooking and the cleaning because it's super easy. I know you're going to love Gobble, too. So my listeners have an incredible limited-time deal to get started. Six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. That's dinner for two for three nights for just $36. We would blow much more than that on the pizza place down the street. Dinner for two for three nights for just $36. Only available at this URL. Don't wait. Go to gobble.com slash friends. Again, that's gobble.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I think about age divisions more than I used to. Uh, One of the things about getting older is you start to really notice how much younger people are. Uh, But I've actually come to appreciate that. One of the great things about getting older, besides not dying, is learning things from younger people. I am incredibly grateful to the really diverse staff at MTV News, which is where I kind of came around on trigger warnings and safe spaces. And here at With Friends Like These, I am grateful for our intern, Lily, who is amazing on many counts, but also incredibly insightful and who teaches me things all the time. Just for example, we were talking about how we wanted to have more indigenous people on the show. And I said something that was probably pretty self-satisfied about how most white people don't even think about the fact we're on native land. Most white people don't even think about the fact that, you know, our country exists because of a genocide. And Lily said that at McAllister, where she is a student, they think about it all the time. And not just because they are incredibly thoughtful students and are aware of their white privilege in a general way. It's part of the official statement that they make at every McAllister public event. 
At every McAllister public event, they read this statement. We ask that you take a moment to honor that we are on Dakota land. McAllister is situated on the ancestral homeland of the Dakota people, particularly the Sisseton and Wapetan bands who were forcibly exiled from the land because of aggressive and persistent settler colonialism. We make this acknowledgement to honor the Dakota people, ancestors, and descendants, as well as the land itself. I will be honest, my very first reaction to learning that this was read at every official McAllister public event was, that is a lot. That is maybe a bit much. I mean, first of all, it's depressing. And second of all, I mean, it maybe it does a lot of good to remind people of that, but it doesn't just fade into the background after a while. Doesn't it become white noise, if you will? And then I remembered the things I had said, you know, a few sentences before about how white people don't think about the bloodbath that our nation was founded upon enough. And I thought about how we sing the national anthem at public events all the time. So maybe NFL games should open with a statement like McAllister's and not the national anthem. Maybe a statement like McAllister's is what we should teach kids in school. I think things would be different. I hope things would be different. This week's guest, novelist Tommy Orange, writes about those discontinuities and occasional cross-fertilizations between mass culture and native culture. His book, There There, came out in 2018 and was immediately on a bunch of best of the year lists. It was nominated for a Pulitzer and won the Penn Faulkner Award. It brings to life characters a well-meaning white person could go a lifetime without meeting. It is funny and smart and almost too sharp. I think you'll get a sense of that sharpness from our conversation which is coming right up. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you on. I enjoyed your book very much. And I am really delighted that you'll be able to read an excerpt for us. Uh, would you mind doing that? Not at all. We've expected the shooter to appear in our lives in the same way we know death is and always has been coming for us. With its decisive scythe, its permanent cut. We half expect to feel the boom of shots firing nearby, to fall to the ground and cover our heads, to feel like an animal, prey in a pile on the ground. We've known the shooter could show up anywhere, anywhere people gathered. We've expected to see him in our periphery, a masked shadow moving through the crowd, picking people off at random, semi-automatic booms, putting bodies down, sending them flailing through the broken air. A bullet is a thing so fast it's hot, and so hot it's mean, and so straight it moves clean through a body, makes a hole, tears, burns, exits, goes on, hungry, or it remains, cools, lodges, poisons. When a bullet opens you up, blood pours out, like out of a mouth too full. A stray bullet like a stray dog might up and bite anyone anywhere, just because its teeth were made to bite made to soften, tear through meat. A bullet is made to eat through as much as it can. Something about it will make sense. The bullets have been coming from miles, years, 
Their sound will break the water in our bodies, tear sound itself, rip our lives in half. The tragedy of it all will be unspeakable. The fact that we've been fighting for decades to be recognized as a present tense people, modern and relevant, alive, only to die in the grass wearing feathers. Thank you. I, I'm really glad you read that section. It, it brings to the surface something that I wanted to ask you about, but I wasn't sure where it was going to come up in the conversation. Maybe we'll just dive right in. Which is, I mean, there is a thread of violence that goes throughout this book. Um, all different kinds of violence, I would say. Historical violence, family violence, gang violence. Um, sometimes it's recognized and sometimes it's not. And to me, reading the book, at least part of what the book's about is how we respond to that violence. Like your different characters respond in different ways. They numb out or they run from it. Um, I would also say humor is something that's used to deal with it. Is that, is that, am I, did I read into this or is that something that you're trying to surface? Um, I would say, I would, I would never say that I was trying to do it. Um, I think in, <laughs> in capturing um, Native people's experience and my own experience, it's sort of unavoidable. Um, and yeah, violence has many different forms, some more active and obvious and others are insidious. And so, um, I think the ways that it shows up in the book are more a reflection of, um, the native community and, and what it's, ex what it still experiences and what its history and relationship to this country is. I think one of the, the ways that you surface it, it in a way that I found revelatory, which says a lot more about me than anything else, and a lot more about my whiteness, is when you talk about Indian heads. Um, and to me, that sort of became another theme in the book, which is the way that history is sort of hiding in plain sight, or at least I should say white people are seeing history and not knowing its history, maybe. Because mm -hmm. you have this whole theme of like, where do we see Indians in our popular culture? It's like basically their decapitated heads on decals and on helmets. Um, so we're seeing this thing that is, act and this actually represents violence, but not recognizing it as violence. Do you think it's important for, for people to, to bring that back to like, to be able to see the violence that's inherent there? Yeah, I think it's, um, it can serve as, as, um, an opportunity to change, um, making it as blatant as possible, even though, you know, like you said, it's hiding in plain sight. Um, sometimes violence when you point it out or when you um, make it part of art, your art, it can grab somebody's attention or shift the way that they see things in a way that if if you did it um, maybe without the violence or you're not pointing it out, people can continue to see not see things. And like you said, the heads on jerseys, like the only other thing on jerseys are animals. So it also, it's not only like a hunter's trophy on a wall, it's also... Um, it's revealing of, of how this country hasn't and still does not see uh, Indian people as equals, but um, sort of inhuman. Right. It's dehumanizing to just put the head on there. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I actually wanted to start with this next question, but since we, we've we've now brought uh, sports teams and helmets into the mix, I can ask you, what is the right way for for well-meaning white people to talk about Native culture? Like you, throughout the book, you use Indian, Native, Indigenous, kind of interchangeably. Um, but you know, I've my <laughs> the way that I feel like I've experienced the awakening of the left on this is that we should be very careful about our language. I would is that agree. something? Yes. Okay. I, I strongly agree with that. <laughs> you know, I get asked, and it, depending on who you're talking to, some people are more sensitive than others, and it's also a generational mm-hmm. thing. Um, right. So, like, Indian people can say Indian all they want, and um, that's sort of a reclamation of a word. And mm. a certain generation grew up calling themselves that. There wasn't a PC term to replace it. Um, like... Native people that I know call just say native a lot of the time. An older generation, like my dad, might just say Indian. Some people say Indian in a particular way that has sort of an accent to it, that that a familiarity with um, a people. Um, native American and American Indian are all part of different generations too. Like the civil rights era, it was American Indian, and people from that era still will call themselves that. And um, you know, I, th- I think you're right and your instincts are right and just being careful around language be- just because it's been used against us. In- Indian, mm-hmm. uh, during a certain time, like you saw signs that said no dogs or Indians allowed. Mm. And speaking of signs, let's talk about your book's title a little bit. So it seems to me that it re- refers to at least two things. Um, there's the Gertrude Stein quote, there is no there there which is a quote about Oakland, which I did not know, actually, um, where the book takes place, Oakland. And then I think it's also a Radiohead song, Yes, right? uh-huh. <laughs> and there's one more meaning that's that's implicit, and it's uh-huh. supposed to be ironic, which is that it's not a comforting book. Oh, but yeah. there's um, there's sort of been the feeling that I've gotten over the years um, when, when talking about Native um, problems— let's say, um, of like, they're there, like sort of get over it, like a condescending kind of not comfort, but like a placating kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To me, that, that that mix of um, references gets to another thing that popped out uh, for me in reading the book, which is kind of remix culture, I might call it. Uh, the idea of, of taking old and new uh, and, and trying to create something personally authentic or, or representational out of that. Um, there's a lot of people in the book who think about their identity and performing that identity. Is that something that, that you bring personal experience to? Like trying to pick, pick and choose parts of culture that represent you or don't represent you and figuring out how to, how to mesh them together? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that I am a Gertrude Stein reader. Um, <laughs> I think she's, I think she's brilliant, but um, I find her pretty unreadable. Her like mm-hmm. winding, repetitive sentences. Um, I love. I happen to love Radiohead, but I found that quote doing research for the book and f- seeing what other Oakland authors had to say about Oakland, and there's not much. Um, I have a sound engineering background, and I have some producing experience and um, very much grew up in remix culture. So um, I think that's definitely something that I maybe was unconsciously doing. Um, 
the the Radiohead thing was actually a coincidence. So um, I found the Gertrude Stein quote, and I knew the title was somewhere in there because there is no there there, and she's referencing her childhood home, which was developed over and unrecognizable. And this book is about people trying to um, figure out what it means to belong to a city and to a people when in the midst of a city where nothing is recognizably native and maybe nothing about them seems to be. Um, so the, the I knew the title was in there, and then I, when I landed on There There, I Googled it to see if there was any other books because I really liked the title There There. And that's when I discovered that it was a Radiohead song, which I knew, but the I pirated um, Hail to the Thief, and that's the, the album that that's on. But it was called Track 09, and so... Um, I was surprised to find that song when I Googled there, there. And then the lyrics in it just happened to match perfectly with the book's themes, which are um, just because you feel it doesn't mean it's there and we are accidents waiting to happen. So that was like serendipity. Yeah, there's so much in the book about, um, well, serendipity, obviously. There's maybe about people's lives coming together uh in, in interesting ways, right? The threads that, that we weave in our lives. And there's also this real theme of, like I was saying, like authenticity and, and how something can start out maybe as not being truly representative, but then is adopted and becomes authentic. And I believe one of the examples, and it's a real touchstone in the book, is the occupation of Alcatraz, which is, uh, a, like I said, a touchstone. It comes up a few times, but it's also really formative for a couple of the characters. And it's when, for people who don't know, it is when uh, Native Americans held the island of Alcatraz for a year plus, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it was almost two years. Yeah. And I, I had sort of forgotten about it myself. I vaguely, I, in my American history, supposedly was a American history major, it came back to me. But it's it's important in the book. Like, it sort of, it sends some plot lines running. Uh and then also a character in the book says that the occupation of Alcatraz actually had been done once before as performance art. And then it happened again as the significant protest. Like to me, this echoes the idea that you can be doing something kind of for representational, for to, in order to kind of pretend to be something or to act something out. But then if you do it enough, or if you do it with a different intention, it becomes real. I feel like I'm not using my my words well here. No, I think I, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, <laughs> it's related to authenticity and tradition. Yeah. And, you know, for example, if we, like reservations aren't traditional, but they're seen as what, they can be seen or have been seen as what makes a Native person authentic. Are they from the reservation? Um, but they that we didn't have those before we were put right. on them. Um, I think there's a misconception about tradition in, in that it stays true to itself forever. And if that were true, we'd be still be doing the same 10,000-year-old rituals. And, you know, we'd have—it would be static. And tradition is alive, and it's about adaptation, as well as, you know, keeping core values. Um, so I, I was trying to, to um, represent that in the book and— and the, the sort of malleable form of of tradition and authenticity, and and it's very much a part of all Native people's life because um, we've been told this is what a real Indian is, and it's usually a, a man with feathers on, and um, and there's there's no spectrum where we can fall. That's that we that the outside world anyway, which we have often been sort of 
stuck being defined by. Um, so I was I was trying to represent the complexity um, that's involved when just when we're trying to figure out um, what it means to be who we are, which not everybody has to tackle that in the same way. Yeah, you have a passage I I liked um, about uh, so-called you know indigenous music. You don't say that, I, but the problem with indigenous art in general is it's stuck in the past. But the catch or the double bind about the whole thing is this: if it isn't pulling from tradition, how is it indigenous? And if it is stuck in tradition in the past, how can it be relevant to other indigenous peoples living now? How can it be modern? And my note to myself after that was: that's a question white people never have to ask themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a real, but it's in the book, like you said, it's the thing that people think about all the time. Um, you have a character that discovers how to, nate, how to, how to do, uh, what kind of dancing would that be called? You would by just the call way? it powwow dancing. Within powwow okay. dancing, there's like, I don't know, maybe even countless um, styles. Like there could be like mm-hmm. Northern men's traditional, or um, there's a lot of Northern and Southern different styles. But you would just mm-hmm. say powwow dancing. So powwow dancing, he learns to powwow dance from watching YouTube, which is a wonderful modern <laughs> kind of thing in the book. You also have a really great section of someone talking about being like basically internet addicted, which I really loved. And I think a lot of people will find resonant. Um, and and of course, he starts out doing that and performing nativeness, but then he kind of gets in touch with who he is. I think. I think that's what happens. Is that a journey that you've had as well? Um. I'm like, am I, am I, am I doing it right now? I'm like, I'm like performing native <laughs> author, answering questions. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm, I think it's all really, it's a really cool kind of concept to kind of wrestle with because you, you talk about, I mean, it's in the book, right? Yeah. Um, all, I mean, people are saying this explicitly, nothing is original. The only way to be an Indian in this world is to look and act like an Indian, which mm-hmm. is something a character thinks, but I don't know if you actually believe that. Yeah, and I'm very I mean, self-conscious I, about using the word Indian now, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I'm not I that sensitive it's... about it. Okay. But I, um, <laughs> just as a, um, a piece of advice, it's it's best that, you know, some people are really sensitive. Um, I think for me, I've kind of resisted the performative nature of it because I grew up um, in Oakland and not necessarily with any traditional ways, but I grew up with a very Native um, dad. And we grew up going back to where he grew up and we're sort of seen as not enough native because we had a white mom and then also grew up in the city or lived in the city. Um, So I feel like um, if I find myself doing things like wearing like native jewelry or the things that are sort of feel performative uh, for me, I resist that because I, Mm -hmm. it feels, um, it just feels fake. And I, I don't want to have to do go overboard or, or act out something in order to be considered something when I know that I am something. Um, and I think a lot of Native people find themselves in that situation where they they decide, like, how how far am I going to lean into this? How, how far do I have to? It all It's a range of, you know, different people. If you're full blood and you know the language and you're from, um, you know, the land that your people are from, you might have to try less hard to do anything. But if you're from the city and you feel like you're really wanting to make a statement about who you are, then you might need to perform it. You find yourself performing it in some way. And in some ways, you know, the book itself for me ends up being that without me trying to. And now like I'm a native author. And so that's its own kind of performance. (laughs) You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I, I, I think I think I do. I think the best I can do is think I can do it. I want to point out that I'm only using the I word when I'm quoting you, I think. Yeah, um, no, it's fine. <laughs> trying, I'm trying, really. Like, that's the running joke about this show is that it's, you know, basically for well-meaning white per- people, which is what I am. Um, uh, and I, I am very conscious of it, you know, a lot of the time, and especially in talking about, like, what is sort of, like, the more sensitive and less sensitive ways to talk. Mm-hmm. How often do you think about your socks? I would say that if you are thinking about your socks, that's usually a bad sign. I personally think about my socks when they are uncomfortable. Uh, When I am trying to do no-show socks, which is hard to say, uh, and they just slip around your heel or they, like, get up all ball up at the end of your foot, I like that no-show look, but it's almost impossible to find socks that are actually, like, do the job of a sock and are also no-show. I think it looks really weird when you wear one of those athletic socks with a no-show shoe. But sometimes you're desperate. This is all to say I love Bombas. Bombas are socks. They make a ton of different kinds. My husband has all the different pairs. What I love is their no-show socks. I think these are truly ingenious, special socks. Um, I This is just the God's honest truth. Um, I have not found any other pair like them that actually it, it does the job of a sock, which is to say, like, it separates your foot from the shoe completely, but it is invisible. That is my value. That is what I like about Bombas. You will like other things about Bombas. Like my husband, he likes the patterns and the colors and that they're comfortable. They have a seamless toe, a cushioned footbed, colors, patterns, styles. They look great in the gym, the office, or out on the town. Bombas are what feet daydream about. And for every Bomba purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash friends today and get 20% off your first purchase. I'm going to actually tell my husband about this. That's bombas.com slash friends for 20% off. Bombas.com slash friends. If you listen to this show, you know I regularly do ads for Rothy's, which are the uh, really cool slides that are made out of recycled plastic water bottles. Um, You can throw them in the wash. They're also super comfy. And I have made reference several times to the fact that a very well-known activist that I know wears Rothy's. And in fact, her whole team wears Rothy's, she told me recently, that they sometimes do Instagram pictures of all of them putting their foot in, uh, like when they're doing a Capitol Hill storm, uh, and they put all their feet in the center and they're all Rothy's. I was talking to her recently. She is Shannon Watts, the leader of Moms Demand Action, uh, the group that campaigns for sensible gun laws. Uh, She's actually going to be a guest on this show, which is one of the reasons I was talking to her. But I asked, I was like, I use the example of you wearing Rothy's all the time. Can I say who you are? And she was like, oh, my God, of course you can. I'm such a huge fan. And I, as far as I know, they have not even, like, given her a pair, which they did me so that I could brag about them. So... If you would like to try Rothy's, just go to rothys.com slash WFLT to try out these really awesome shoes, a stamp of approval from one of America's most important activists. Again, that's rothys.com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats, comfort style, sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. 
So I, I want to ask you if it's okay. I mean, it's definitely a theme in your work, and you just sort of talked about it, about the ways that people, um, you know, uh, sort of unconscious bigotry against Native peoples and as making assum- racist assumptions about them. And you push back on a lot of stereotypes. What is what is the stuff that people are doing that maybe they don't realize is harmful, hurtful, insensitive? Uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, people use powwow to talk about, like, gathering to talk. <laughs> and okay. that's, like, not a great—I mean, it's offensive, but it's also not even what a powwow is. <laughs> It's not like it's a circle of people talking. Um, I think, you know, the the redskin stuff is pretty glaring and the fact that nobody's moving on that is kind of a um, a glaring problem. Um, I think I think a major one that non-native people judging what they think um, what they think authentic being authentically native is is a problem that I've seen a lot. Maybe this is a good time to bring up Elizabeth Warren. Oh God! Um, <laughs> you know, I um, I think it was dumb what she did, and she and she clearly used it on something to try to advance herself. And mm-hmm. I think she should be more honest about having done that. I f- feel like she went into denial mode. She should just own up for it. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, I I think giving that too much attention like feeds Trump what he mm. wants. And, you know, him calling her Pocahontas sort of like dismisses everything and use it at our expense. So I, I don't like to even pay too much attention to it. But I do feel like she should have just owned up for what she did um, in trying to use some kind of minority status to further her career. Yeah, I, I and I don't want to talk about it too much, except I feel like she embodies a certain kind of well-meaning whiteness, Um I think, although you pointed out her her particular appropriation there was very selfish mm-hmm. in that particular instance. Um, I will say that it's been interesting to see that she's at least thinking about indigenous people more probably than other candidates. Uh, she has said that we should be considering uh, native reparations in addition to slavery reparations, uh, which it might people may not realize that that actually never happened before. Um, historically, there has not been a reconciliation of that kind. Um, and I think she's just more aware of it. And the other thing that the reason why I think about her is that, so I grew up in Texas and I feel like white people in the, maybe it's the West, Southwest, a lot of white people say things about their long lost way back native ancestor. I mean, surely this is something that you've seen. 90% of the time they're Cherokee. And princess, princesses sometimes. <laughs> Which for me, the fact yep. that they're always grandmothers is usually means they were probably raped. You know, that's the fact that they weren't, they're not grandfathers. They're not great, great grandfathers. And, you know, the position that Native women were in in those times, it was likely a compromised relationship, if, it, if not rape. See, I, I feel bad about laughing, but I've always kind of assumed that it's not even true. That there's yeah. this weird, like desire to appropriate not for necessarily personal political gain and and personal um like professional gain but there's this strange kind of wanting to appropriate the cool parts of native culture yeah that's what it's always always been about the cool parts yeah (laughs) yeah they don't want the non-cool parts that's for sure you know um and like my own family had this legend 
right? Uh-huh. And it was literally based on the same thing that Elizabeth Warren is, by the way. The whole high cheekbones thing, which I think is, it's literally racist, right? Yeah, like, it's horrible. L- literally. <laughs> um, but I always saw when my my relatives talked about this, like for me, what it always seemed like is like we were trying to like appropriate a kind of badassness. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, all the romanticized versions like warrior and this mystic and all these um, ways that that we try to make Native people cool, which, you know, you'd think that's kind of a cool thing, but it's really not because there's it's either it's it's either like cool warrior mystic or um, or like dumb drunk. And there's not a lot of in between. And this is like part of the monolith that has crushed us for so long. And this brings me to something, and I, I thought that maybe this is another thing that well-meaning white people are doing that maybe we should be reconsidering, which is um, the spiritual aspect that you just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the appropriation of a certain kind of talking about spirituality. Yeah. And it's super, you know, I think of Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow a little bit. Um, Did she do something? New- well, what I think of, I associate her with this kind of way of talking about spirituality and like this new agey spirit animal. That actually, that phrase right oh, there. That's a, that's a troublesome. Yeah, that's a that's one that you should stay away <laughs> from too. Um, this way of talking about spirituality that seems to be kind of referencing Native culture in a in a way without really paying any attention to it. Yeah, you know, and I I think people believe when they do that. They're being complimentary, yeah. you know, but that doesn't, but that's, we should tell, tell me how that is on, from your side, actually. I mean, I mean, it's part of the, the stereotype, but it's, the appropriation is just appropriation. It's not that yeah. complicated, but the, there is this other part. Um, I just was asked recently at a, in LA from an audience member, um, just to talk more about spirituality in this way that was like. There's all sorts of stuff to unpack in the way he asked it. <laughs> I um, guess so. And I sort of, you know, for me, I, I grew up very spiritual and I do come from a, a very spiritual uh, family in a, in a ceremonial family. Um, but the just to play into that stereotype because you want to hear like a, an Indian mystic say something with wisdom. You know, wisdom is even a loaded word by now. Native American mm-hmm. wisdom. Um, I think... You know, if we have been a spiritual people, it's because we've needed to pray. And like American culture is sort of bereft of spirituality. And we've been, what we've been through has required that we pray. Um, and, and so if we, if, if we have been that, um, it, it, it has come from a plate from, a, um, being put through a lot. Um, so, you know, most of the time it's the well-meaning white people that do it. It's somewhat innocent, but um, I think, you know, in 2019, there's a lot of, when you when you have a lot of these little innocent, well-meaning white people things, they add up to the dominant culture and, and, and it, it collectively, it's, it's not um, just little things. It's a major problem. I think this gets us to a good segue for another um, place in the book that maybe combines some of the themes you're talking about, including violence. Um, and appropriation, which is the idea that the wound that white people have inflicted has never been addressed or healed or comforted, that we've just kind of moved on. We, I'm going to say we, white people, 
have just kind of moved on from it and, and chosen to very, be very selective about our past. But at the same time, when we do talk about it, and I believe this is well-meaning white people, it is as though Native people represent, again, like this almost um, hyperbolic like wisdom and spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I loved this section, the wound that was made by white people. The mo- wound that was made when white people came and took all that they took has never healed. An unattended wound gets infected. And I would skip a little bit to say, and don't make the mistake of calling us resilient. To not have been destroyed, to not have given up, to have survived is no badge of honor. Would you call an attempted murder victim resilient? Is that a message that you hope people hear? Yeah, and, and I've, I've even had indignant white people sort of come at me in audiences uh, like because they really want to be able to use that word resilient. They want to keep it. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think the problem is they want they want us to have gotten up and not talk about why we were down. And so mm-hmm. this is like ignoring history and and highlighting like, well, look how strong they are. You know, but but without talking about what we're getting back up from or what we're able to survive through, it's not a compliment. It's it's part of the glossing over or the um, the sterilization of history. There, there's been pretty successful. Uh, lots of best of lists, I think. Um, the Penn Faulkner Award. And I completely, I, it's beautiful. Um, there's some phrases and sentences in it that are going to live with me for a long time. Thank you. It is sort of also interesting that it's done so well. Like what's been, what has that experience been like for you? Um, I guess bizarre at this point um, is the only <laughs> word I can think of because it's been a lot of different things. Um, I think, you know, it definitely is a book of its time and would not mm-hmm. have done what it's done had it not come out on sort of right after Trump um, and people wanting to pay attention to marginalized communities. Um, and also, um, I think, in the context of Standing Rock, um, there's other Native writers that are doing well, and um, there's been a history of this um, Native people coming to national attention and then that leading to a bunch of Native books coming out. So in uh, for Alcatraz and Civil Rights, there was a big Native renaissance, or what they call a Native renaissance. And in the 90s, and this is not a joke, um, Dances with Wolves brought Native <laughs> people to everyone's attention right. and it won the Academy Awards. And there was a bunch yep. of books that came out around that time. And, um, you know, I think this is all in the context of our, our political times. And, and Standing Rock, I think, made people pay attention again. And um, so it's definitely it lives within its time. Um, and that's part of its success. I'm not trying to undercut myself too much. I, I think you're, it's clear that would, I don't think the book would be doing as well if it was just about that stuff. The writing is also lovely. So, um, I, I mean, I think you're... I think you're right to put it in context um, in this particular moment. And I guess my next question is, I, I feel like I am turning to you like as a Native person, which is something that sometimes on the show we talk about the, how that in and of itself is problematic, right? Yeah, and me being a voice for all Native people is kind of an absurd thing because we're, <laughs> we're so many things. I mean, we're um, over 576 
tribes and each their right. tribes are so different in in their worldviews and their um just uh in their languages and and so it's really should be on a tribe by tribe basis the way we talk about native people but there is a certain pan indianism that we can't deny that started in the civil rights era and so you sort of it's there's sort of a paradox to it you have to talk about it as a whole but you don't want to have to and also i mean I would love for you to tell me what I'm getting wrong about this, but you are both representing Native people and also wrote this very idiosyncratic, beautiful book, and you kind of have to do two jobs, it seems like, which maybe isn't fair. Well, I don't think I was seeing myself as a representative. I okay. definitely was trying to write about where I'm from and the people that I'm from, and that happens to be, you know, I'm, I'm Cheyenne, even though I'm enrolled in the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, we're Southern Cheyenne specifically. Um, but I was writing about a certain experience being from Oakland and being native and working in that community for almost a decade. Um, I was just trying to represent the world that I come from. And so I never saw it as a burden to do to do that. I just felt like that's the lens through which I see and um, that's how the characters came out. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, the New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Both online and in print, the New Yorker covers a full range of topics including politics, news, international affairs, climate change and the environment, popular culture and the arts, and of course, fiction. Stories like one written this week by friend of the pod Gia Tolentino, Losing Religion and Finding Ecstasy in Houston. It is about drugs and Christianity, and I think I only need to read you the opening line for you to understand that it is an awesome article. The church I grew up in was so big, we called it the Repentagon. I don't need to tell you how good The New Yorker is. I did need to tell you how good that article is. You should definitely check it out. Now get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. Plus, you get a New Yorker tote bag. People still do tote bags including home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to thenewyorker.com, which has 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day and more. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 plus the tote bag. Go to newyorker.com slash friends. Again, listeners save 50% newyorker.com slash friends. You probably know who Jamel Hill is. Uh, she used to be on ESPN. She now has her own podcast. And most recently, she had one of the best Game of Thrones tweets about the finale. I will read it to you right now. So Bran gets to be king despite the fact he just put his name on the group project and didn't do any work. So she is funny. She is smart. And like I said, she has a podcast. It is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Every Monday and Thursday, you can catch her and her two co-hosts, friend of the pod, Michael Arsenault and Cole Wiley. They have insightful and entertaining hot takes. I wouldn't even call them hot takes. That's how good they are on the day's stories in news, sports and politics, music and other important issues. She has a cool, wide range of guests, including Stacey Abrams, Common, Soledad O'Brien, and Don Lemon, all people who I want to hear more from. So listen now to Jamel Hill is Unbothered for free, only on Spotify. I've read that you you hate doing public speaking at schools because they're still teaching history wrong. 
Is that right? That's not the reason. Um, okay. I'm, mostly I'm afraid of high schoolers. <laughs> <laughs> and who isn't? I know. We all should be. So No, but actually all the high school events I've done have been really sweet and I've been grateful afterward. It's just the idea of high schoolers makes me scared. No, okay. they're, they're still teaching it stupidly at uh, my son's school, elementary school. And so mm-hmm. the first Thanksgiving that we knew that was coming, um, we just pulled him out of school the whole week um, because a lot of that stuff is so insidious. And we just, um, that was our way to protest it. But the, the last two years, we actually brought um, a powwow singer and his family up from Oakland. And he comes in like a baseball cap and jeans and a t-shirt and he's hitting the drum and he's singing powwow songs and his family comes in regalia and they dance and um, all the kids and I live in a predominantly white town um, in California in the mountains um, all the kids ask questions and all of the American ignorance comes out and whether that's directly from their parents or from pop culture all the questions that you can imagine like I think a kid asked um, how come some grass grows shorter and some taller like like he would <laughs> okay. have some inherent knowledge of nature. Like this is another mm-hmm. stereotype, like connected to nature in this mystical way. Um, but he answers in a really compassionate way because it's kids and they don't know what they're asking. And it turns into, and we get like three or four grades together and all the teachers and, and um, it's an, it's an opportunity to, to educate people and unpack some of these kids questions in a really compassionate way. And, and it's harder um, a full-grown adult, when they ask something so ignorant, it's harder to compassionately unpack their stuff. But with kids, it, it's uh, it's easy to reach for compassion. I want to be clear there. Is that around Thanksgiving that you do that? Yes. Okay. That's pretty much the only time of year that people are thinking of Native people. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm, I am interested because I did want to ask you about Thanksgiving. Um, which is, let's to say the least, problematic. Uh, you have a lovely little piece of history in the book where you talk about the meal that uh, the colonists and the Massasoit? Oh, so it. Um, so it. Massasoit, Massasoit, yeah. Massasoit um, ate together. And the, the meal that we celebrate was actually a land deal meal, uh-huh. um, which I actually had this idea that maybe— at the next Thanksgiving, I, at my family, we should go around the table and say what land deal we had this year rather than what we're grateful for, <laughs> um, which at least would be more accurate, I suppose. Yeah. I confess. So I, I, I am in recovery. So there's a lot of your book that I really jammed with. There's some themes about that. And you know, a big part of being in recovery is, being, is practicing gratitude. And for the past few years, as a person in recovery, I've always really liked Thanksgiving as a time that, oh, we're all going to do this now, right? But, of course, it is a holiday drenched in blood. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm asking, like, have they, have, has the historic reason for that holiday and the rituals we have around it become separated enough that it's, it's okay to celebrate it? I don't want to ask you if it's okay. I want to ask you for your particular opinion, knowing that you do not represent everyone, but just having thought about this, clearly having thought about this, what do you think? Well, actually, um, in what they call Indian country, um, it's really all over the map. Some people, there's a celebration on Alcatraz every Thanksgiving. 
Um, and I think it's even called Unthanksgiving. Um, and they have a sunrise ceremony and it's a celebration of native life. Um, other people um, don't celebrate at all. Um, and then there's a lot of native people that like to get together because everyone has the day off. I and mean, these working class <laughs> people can't always all get the day off together. Right. Um, and not to say all natives are working class, but it's a higher number than most um, other groups. Um, there was one. There was one year where I was at the time I was dating a Jehovah Witness, and they mm-hmm. don't celebrate the holidays because they think of them as pagan. They're like pagan adaptations. And uh, my sister was then the president of the American Indian Club at San Francisco State, and so um, we all got together to celebrate not celebrating Thanksgiving, and we had a turkey and everything because it was cheap <laughs> at the store. <laughs> and it felt pretty ridiculous to, you know. So I, I can't say whether it's—I um, would never condemn anyone for doing it. I think being aware and even having conversations when you're all together about the real um, the nature of it. And I think that's a good that's a good start. But I would never say, like, I would never judge anybody for doing it. To do it blindly, I feel like, or like to, to there's a tradition of like inviting a Native American to your dinner or um, to talk about it in the, the sort of sterilized way is more problematic than, but I would never say just don't do it. And again, I want to be clear again, I do not want to treat you as representative of like every people. Um, but you clearly, I mean, like I said, you've clearly thought about it. There's a couple of different places in the book where it comes up. You talk about celebrating, not celebrating. I guess that's a personal reference uh, in the book. Um, it, you, it, I, it does sound, you know, inviting a Native person to Thanksgiving dinner does seem kind of crazy and insulting and condescending. But it, it is clear also most, a lot of white people maybe think that they don't have contact with Native people, and they do, or they have contact without thinking. I mean, I think what's probably true is we have contact without thinking about it. Uh-huh. There's another passage in your book that I really liked about um, re- choosing to remain ignorant. Uh, if you were fortunate enough to be born into a family whose ancestors directly benefited from genocide and or slavery, maybe you think the more you don't know, the more innocent you can stay. And that's the passage that I was sort of thinking about when I asked you that question. Um, And now reading it out loud, I realize maybe the perspective that could be gained is not like, I'm a white person, I want to find about Indian culture, but I'm a white person, I need to see what my people did. Mm -hmm. That's probably more helpful. Yeah, that that feels, um, that does feel like a true thing to do. Yeah. What was my part? What were my people's part in this? I mean, it's 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 complicated for me and always has been because my mom's white. And so I'm not like, I'm not clean and free of this either. It's, it's always been a complicated thing for me growing up in a house that had a lot of fighting happening. It was a very visible illustration of what was going on. Uh, I felt an inherent conflict within me. Yeah, I mean, there are, are no easy answers to any of this, really. And that's like most of what I wanted to say about identity and and about Native life, because it's we've been simplified and, um, you know, like I said, thought of monolithically. 
the one one of the last things I did want to talk about a little bit is um you do have a lot of modern and pop culture references in the book. Uh, and maybe that relates a little bit to remix culture. But I also wonder, like, is it intentional that you just want to really ground this book in, like, right now? That's that exactly. A, I, I, yeah. I did it on purpose, and I tried to do it as much as possible <laughs> as a position of resistance to us being always historical. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to make it feel like right now because we, we don't often get depictions of ourselves as feeling right now. Um, so that's why I had, you know, drones and um, people are on Facebook and have cell phones and are on the internet. Um, and that's also just the reality. So it, it was doing both things. There are some writing schools that will say never use, never like date yourself by using specific references like that. And I think that's all related to like, trying to make your work immortal and I just have zero interest in in people reading my book when I'm dead. I, I don't care. <laughs> um, I think I really appreciate that. I actually appreciate it a lot as a position of resistance. I think um, it was for me, again, as a sort of the well-meaning white person reader, one of the things I felt strongly reading the book was the way you smashed um, preconceptions about what it means to live, you know, a native life, like where that takes place and what you consume and what, what are the concerns, right? Um, and I think having people like use drones and be on Facebook, that was actually one of my favorite chapters, by the way, is that chapter of when, um, Edwin, right, uh -huh. uh, is sort of the main character monologuing about his internet addiction. Um, I found, I found a lot of myself oh, thank you. in that particular, <laughs> in that particular passage. I was about to say, but my family is pretty poor, but that really doesn't necessarily mean anything. <laughs> well, there, this is something that comes up from, um, that I've seen come up a lot with, with white people who don't want to be considered just white as they'll bring yeah. in class to kind of, I'm not yeah. saying that you're doing that, but it's an interesting thing that comes up. Oh no, I had the I had the impulse to do it. Now I think you can call me out on it. It's totally true. Yeah, it's like, it's a it's a, but it's a real thing. <laughs> like I've 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 come across it. It's it's become somewhat common, not just with native people, but um, white people that don't feel like they, when you say whiteness or when you talk about whiteness, it's referring to them. And it's there's there's a fair argument to be made that what it's referring to is. Um, is related to inherited wealth and opportunity. And that is more what you're pointing to when it comes to whiteness, but there's a, and there's a, there's a necessary, but there, um, when it comes to race and, um, there are privileges that, that come with whiteness, no matter what class you are. So it's not, you know, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. Yeah. You're, I, I hear you. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, you know, what always is clear to me is that whiteness, you know, it's literally a protective coating, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just white people are much less likely to die. Well, I think also, you know, like, growing up— For being their for being the color that they are. And also, like, when you look at the TV, like, everybody's white. I mean, until more recently, um, like, all your, all your you have heroes all over the place, and, like, you're represented everywhere. And that does something, that does a lot. And to have, to be native is to see almost no people on the screen. Um, and that's a big difference between like 
a poor white kid is still watching a white Superman save the day. And a rich native kid will maybe never see anybody native. I mean, now it's, like I said, it's things are changing, so. I, my ignorance is showing, is there a Native American superhero that's not like a racist depiction? There is. Uh, in Suicide Squad, um, Adam Beach is like one of the most famous Native actors. But he he's in the film for maybe three minutes, and within that three minutes he punches a woman in the mouth. And then he's Ooh. the first one to die. So it's not great. <laughs> well, you know, like you said, things are changing. They're rebooting Avengers probably, right? So um, I was actually thinking, so, you know, the next um, Captain America is black. I was, part of me was like, no, like really like the best. Yeah. But the oh. best Captain America would be native, right? Yeah, I mean, that's true. <laughs> like that would be black. It's, it's, it's good to to go away from white, period. So, you know, that's an improvement. But it would be really cool, right? I know. I, I really hope that they do a Native superhero. There are there are Native superheroes in comics. Right. I mean, maybe a handful at the most. Thank you so much. Yeah, good thank luck you. With the paperback. Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it. And that is it for this week's show. I was going to not do one of the affirmation things that I sometimes do at the end here. But this week, I really needed affirmations. Uh, The voices in my head that tell me that I'm not good enough, that it is too late for me to do things differently, that I am less than. Those voices were super loud this week. And I was fortunate enough to have a therapy appointment this week. And so I told my therapist about the voices. We've talked about them before. I've made clear that the voices are not like actual voices, you know, like they're just the messages. Sometimes I call them tape loops. There's a lot of them. I won't go into detail. But basically it's negative self-talk. And I've tried to deal with negative self-talk in a lot of different ways. Um, A friend of mine suggests shouting back to those voices. Uh, Another friend suggest remembering that those voices are lies. Um, Another friend sort of talks about making friends with those voices and telling them they're not needed anymore. I sometimes think, well, if I just did the things that the voices say I can't do, maybe that would do it. Like the voices tell me that I'm lazy and and stupid. If I show them that I'm not lazy and stupid, maybe that would, would make the voices go away. My therapist said something that I have never thought about before. My therapist said, what if those voices aren't the thing you should be paying attention to? What if those voices are symptoms of something else? What if those voices aren't the fire? They're the fire alarm. And when you hear those voices, what's happening is that you're getting a message from yourself that you need to take better care of yourself. That when those voices get really loud, the solution isn't to do something about the voices. The solution is to take care of yourself. So, my friends, please, take care of yourselves. <laughs>